And we might be doing things just because we're upholding some standard that if we really were to check in with our hearts and souls, they're not actually bringing us joy. So I believe things need to either bring us results or bring us joy. And if they don't bring us results or joy, then they have no business in our lives. So does this actually need to be done is is the first question. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day, I hate to say it, but there's a new study from public health researchers at Victoria University. This is the Victoria University in Melbourne. They spell it Melbourne, but you're supposed to say Melbourne. This is because I like all my Australian friends and followers. Anyway, people who run as little as once a week have lower risk of early death compared to people who don't run at all. In fact, any amount of running was associated with a 27% lower risk of premature death. Now, why do I not like to talk about this study? Actually, I'm happy to talk about any study, but generally running a lot and running regularly has an 80% chance of causing an injury the first year you start and generally can result in over the course of decades, which is the time frame that we're talking about here, in uh, new knees, new hips, and all sorts of bad things happening. So I'm going to tell you cardio instead of running might be better, but what they did find in this study, which was interesting, was there's no significant difference between frequency, duration, or pace. And they went from running no more than once a week for less than 50 minutes to running every day for a weekly total of 250 minutes. And this was based on a meta-analysis, which means they looked at 14 other studies of 230,000 people and published it in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Uh, So what I'm going to do is just generalize this and say, based on Headstrong and the very strong data in Superhuman, my new anti-aging book, seriously, you got to move. Whether you have to actually run versus ride a bike or swim probably doesn't matter. And so there you go, more data that says that you ought to do something. And if you wanted to make that running even more tolerable, put on an episode of Bulletproof Radio, like today's maybe, and then just close your eyes, do that unpleasant exercise, get it over with, check the box, maybe you'll live longer. If not, you'll just be smarter. And better looking. Okay, at least one of the three. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. If you're not following my brand of weird biohacker humor, you really should be, and you should follow my Instagram page, dave.asprey. A few hundred thousand followers like my weird humor, and I promise you there will be pictures of my turkeys, my pigs, and my sheep, or at least little videos on my stories. It's actually kind of cool to see that I really do what I say I do. Now, today's guest is someone else who does what she says she's going to do. We are talking about 
Kate Northrup. She's an entrepreneur, best-selling author, speaker, and mom. And she focuses on doing something near and dear to my heart, doing less and working fewer hours while raising two small kids. And just wrote a book about it that is worth your time listening to this, even if you're not a mom, even if you don't have two kids or one kid or any kids, because her mindset and her thinking is relevant to all of us around just not wasting time on stuff that doesn't matter. Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And why did you decide you were going to build a company as a mother of two young kids? <laughs> Isn't that the worst time to build a company? Well, actually, here's the good news. I started my company before I had kids. So we were well underway by the time okay. we started having kids. Um, though, I work with a lot of women who do decide. And here's what's really crazy. There is something that happens. It's very common. This is purely anecdotal that I know so many women who get this crazy burst of creativity at the same time as having kids. And it's not optimal timing. But at the same time, I really believe that creating a human stimulates your creativity on a lot of other levels as well. I didn't think we'd go there in this interview, but I truly think that starting a company uh, or a movement is energetically the same as having a baby. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and that's not to say that the physical parts of having a baby um, aren't uh, different and difficult, but there's something that both parents' energy does, but in particular the mom's. Um, that is, uh, it, it's around expanding and growing and you know being a container and all that. And it's it's what they don't talk about for entrepreneurs that you're going to have to do that. And that energy comes from somewhere, um, usually your coffee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so your your book uh, Do Less uh, is it, it just has the right title. It has everything, but I, I have a sense of skepticism here because. So many moms, including some of my uh, my wife, you know, my wife's a, a medical doctor and a fertility coach for highly successful people, and she sees people who are you know, women who are CEOs of startups, and then they have babies and they get what she, what Lana's calling a mommy brain, like like for some amount of time, particularly like really smart, driven, focused women. It's almost like Mother Nature's like, hey, it's time to slow down, like focus on nursing, you know, focus on the nest, which to, to some women can almost be like a loss of identity. Like I'm, my memory doesn't work the way I'm supposed to. Like I'm so emotional. I'm sensitive to sounds. Did, did any of that stuff affect you right in the middle of this? Mm, I love that question. Yeah, it's actually why I wrote the book. <laughs> because <laughs> motherhood, I mean, I've always been a super high achiever straight A student, all the, all the, you know, all the check boxes and becoming pregnant actually completely knocked me out. And I got the pregnancy brain big time. And it was, and then, and then giving birth was a whole thing. <laughs> and then having the baby, I just didn't know who I was anymore because I had completely identified with doing and with being capable and with being smart and with achieving things that you could see. And now I didn't know who I was anymore because I could not do those things at the same pace that I had done before, right at the beginning. Um, now, over time, I have learned how to actually achieve the same or more with less doing. But in all honesty, right in those early days of pregnant, of, uh, of having a newborn, I wasn't, you know, I don't, I don't know. Women can do whatever they want. For me, <laughs> it was not the right time to be out like kicking butts and kicking butts and taking names. So you did it anyway, though, and decided you write a book about what you did. What was the first thing, uh, the, the first moment of realization that, all right, I'm going to have to change my priorities or change my practices? That, like, tell me, tell me the time that it hit you. It wasn't. A conscious thing. It was like a body thing. So my body just took me out. During pregnancy, I was so tired. And I kept waiting for the second trimester where all my friends were like, oh, it's so great. You'll get this huge burst of energy. You'll want to have sex all the time. And one of my girlfriends was like, I wrote five book proposals during my second trimester. And I was like, okay, cool. I can't wait. And that never happened. I just got more tired and more swollen and more huge. 
And my body just, I could not work the same hours I used to. And then during that first year of parenthood, um, I struggled with postpartum anxiety, postpartum insomnia. So I wasn't sleeping. As we know, sleep is so critical to our well-being on so many levels. So that knocked me out. And we had very little childcare because I thought I was supposed to be superwoman and be able to run a business and take care of a baby at the same time. And blah, blah, blah. It was a very hard year. Basically, at year one, we sat with our accountant and we're looking at our numbers for our company and realized we had made the same amount of revenue working, both of us, less than half the amount we had ever worked prior in our adult lives. And so even though I would never want to go back and repeat that first year of parenthood because it was fairly hellish for us, I looked at that and I thought, well, if we could make the same amount of revenue in less than half the amount of time because we were forced to, what if we took some of what we were doing by accident and did it on purpose in a far less stressful situation? And also, P.S., we're not that special so there's got to be something here that other people could apply to their lives. So what's the first the first step you recommend for someone? And I'm going to generalize this a little bit. So uh, someone who's just overwhelmed and we'll, we'll, in fact, say for a woman who, who's feeling overwhelmed right now, because certainly pregnancy, having two young kids, that's a recipe for overwhelm. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> it's just oh because gosh, of the constant it's... interruptions. Okay. So circadian disruption plus mm. mommy, look, mommy, look, like I just wanted to send this one email and, and it's, you know, it's going to help put, you know, put bread on the table, <laughs> gluten-free, you know, organic hippie bread and all that. But, uh, you know, like, like that, that is incredibly stressful. So, so let's say someone's just dealing with that. I have, I have this overwhelm. What's the first thing that you tell them to mm. do? So I really recommend, I think overwhelm um, is often a recipe, it, it comes from, yes, it's like feeling like we have too much to do, but really what overwhelm comes from is not having clear priorities. So I used to struggle a lot with priorities. I understand everything feels important, especially when you have a two-year-old, you know, calling your name every two seconds. Um, in my case, I have a 19-month-old and a four-year-old calling my name every two seconds. And But I do recommend making, literally doing a brain dump and making a list because when things swirl in our minds, they, um, it's like they, they, you add fertilizer to them. They explode. They become bigger than they actually are. But when you do a brain dump and you write down a list of the things that you think you have to do or the things that you have on your plate, and then I recommend asking the following three questions about the items on that list. One of them, the first one is, and I do this every single week at the beginning of the week, um, because most of us think that in order to be more successful, we need to add more to our plate. But the vast majority of us, in order to be more successful in whatever way that means for you, we need to take things off of our plate. We need to do less. And so first question is, does this need to be done? Like, does this actually need to be done. So, so often we get caught up in these idealized projections of what our lives are supposed to be or what motherhood is supposed to be or marriage is supposed to be. And a lot of them are based on unconscious inherited beliefs from our culture, from our families, from our religious upbringing. And, and we might be doing things just because we're upholding some standard that if we really were to check in with our hearts and souls, they're not actually bringing us joy. So I believe things need to either bring us results or bring us joy. And if they don't bring us results or joy, then they have no business in our lives. So does this actually need to be done is, is the first question. And so an example of something that you might write down on your list that doesn't actually need to be done is like, let's say you decided you needed to be in charge of the entire bake sale for your kid's school and bake all gluten-free um, amazing organic baked goods. Well, does that second part actually need to be done? <laughs> like the handmade, every single thing. I mean, I think that a bake sale is a bad example for your particular podcast. <laughs> um, but, but that's like an example. We really have to get, get rigorous with ourselves. And then the second question is, does it need to be done by me? So here's where we get into the aspect of the fact that 
we are programmed to believe that the more we do, and ideally the more we do alone, the more valuable we are as a human being. That's really a core belief that's running the show, even if we're not conscious of it, and having us be overdoers. And the truth is, largely, if something needs to be done, a lot of the times it doesn't need to be done by you. I mean, I'm even, I've even begun to delegate things to my 19-month-old for, I mean, sim- simple stuff. But like <laughs> the other day, you know, there was a piece of trash on the floor. And I said, Ruby, can you pick that up and take it to the garbage? And she totally did. And I didn't have to get up from reading. It was great. <laughs> so start them early. And then the third question is, does it need to be done right now? And this one's incredibly helpful because if something doesn't need to be done today or this week, it really doesn't belong in your consciousness. It belongs either in your project management software or on your calendar at a future time so you can take it out of the swirl. It sounds really, really good. And by the way, I agree with you, especially for entrepreneurs. Like if someone else can do it, why the heck are you doing it? Yeah. Um, and, and for moms, that means laundry. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Delegate the laundry as soon as humanly possible. Actually, I'm going to be a little bit um, outrageous here. I'm going to say that's not just for moms. Uh, that's for women entrepreneurs in general. Because I've spent a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs, um, both in before I got known for Bulletproof and after. And if I'm in a room full of uh, primarily uh, women entrepreneurs, they're carrying so many household tasks that they learned when they were seven is what you do to be a good girl. And they're still doing it and trying to run a company and, and a family and like, stop. Like, that's the lowest hanging fruit. What was your lowest hanging fruit? Like the thing that you were doing that was the least value added of anything out there. Do you want a business answer or a personal answer? Personal. A personal answer. Like the whole food thing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the three meals a day and the snacks and then they want to eat again. I just, that I have really, and I, we continue to go in and out, but I did delegate and I had somebody come in and make our food. It was the greatest decision I've ever made in my life because my value to my children is not in me needing to make all the food. It's in making sure they are fed. (laughs) And so that was a big one because I was noticing it was taking up a lot of mental space for me. And I need that mental space for other things other than figuring out what's for dinner. Now, that sounds really wonderful. I mean, look at you, look at me. Yeah. We're both uh-huh. in a position where, oh, did you have a cook come in? Uh, did they drive the Bentley? You're a successful author. Okay, people say this crap to me all the time. I'm like, my car is seven years old, guys. I live in the middle of nowhere, and there's actually no one to hire to do that, and we cook our own food. In fact, we grow it ourselves. But the perception that, oh, you've had some level of success, you know, you're Kate Northrup, uh, that you can do it. But how is someone who hasn't uh, had a level of economic success, someone who's working, you know, eight or 10 hours a day and commuting home, they have to put food on the table and they're the one who cooks it or Absolutely. no one eats. What's Absolutely. your advice for, for, for that? Because that's how most of us are living. So I'm going to quote my friend Sarah Jenks. And she said to me the other day, in our companies, in our companies, it's 2019, you know, and <laughs> women are there earning money still at a lower rate than men, but they're there in our yep. homes. It's 1950. So you pointed at it already, even when you're in a room with full of female entrepreneurs, you know, they're still thinking that they need to be doing the laundry in order to be the good girl. We are not keeping up at home with feminism. So now listen, I understand not everybody is um, married. Not everybody is a heterosexual couple. However, if you are in a situation where you are married to a heterosexual cisgender man, you need to divide up the tasks and stop expecting yourself to hold the whole thing because somehow that's going to make you a better woman. Doing more laundry and cooking more meals is not going to make you a better woman. So I really recommend, and Mike and I did this, we wrote down on pieces of paper every area of our lives and every single thing that needed to happen in every area of our lives. And we went through and he chose the thing that he loves to do. I chose the things that I love to do. 
And then we both made, uh, we both marked off the things that we absolutely hate to do. And so we looked at, okay, what can, what actually has to happen on this list? What doesn't need to happen? Who's going to do what? Da, 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 da. And for many of you, meal meals don't need to be yours every single day. And especially as your children get older, you can, you can um, pull them in as well, because especially when they're in that like seven, eight, nine, ten, they're actually still really excited about helping and contributing. And the earlier we get them as contributing factors in our families, the better for their well-being for the rest of their lives. Uh, amen. A hundred percent agreement. And I'm going to offer a parenting hack. And then I want you to judge me for whether I'm doing this right or not. Well, I'm not a parenting expert. So. I'm just a parent. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you're also talking about doing less. And so I share that with you. Look, the reason that we've had kids throughout all of history, um, aside from the fact that our mitochondria tell us that if we don't have sex frequently, that we'll die. Uh, because they really want us to reproduce the Petri dish that is uh, the way our mitochondria reproduce themselves. But aside from that, <laughs> is that we had kids because we needed free labor. Yes. And child labor is the sweetest because it's done by children uh, who don't have any choice about it because you, you, know, you can tell them you don't feed them. Okay, that was dark. Uh, but that's kind of how it works. And if you go back to the 1950s, you know, the kids went out into the fields and they did the work. So I told my kids, all right, as soon as you're old enough, your job is you either set the table, or you clear the table, because I'm not doing it, uh, especially if I'm the one cooking dinner, uh, or Lana is. And and I said, you're going to get an allowance. It's going to be a dollar a day. And man, the amount of complaining. So then I looked at them. I said, all right, here's the deal. You get a dollar for doing it without whining, and you get a dollar for doing it. And if you do a crappy job, you don't get either one. <laughs> and that day, the kid stopped whining. Because it's like, look, if you whine, you make, you make less allowance. And that's worked for five years. They don't whine about their stuff. They just say, okay, I'm going to do it. I love it. Um, they whine about other stuff. But what what do you think? Good idea? Bad idea? So I think that if it, I, hey, does it create results or joy or both? <laughs> less whining <laughs> equals joy for any parent. Yeah, just... and your table is set and cleared. I mean, I, listen, I don't know. My kids aren't old enough to to do those things, um, but I'm I'm getting them on board as soon as possible, and we we will absolutely be incentivizing because I will say, like growing up, my parents are wonderful, and there were certain things uh, that we had to do, and we were just part of the like we were just part of the deal. You know, we were loading firewood, we were um, we were doing all of that stuff, and and I think. I could have even been taught to contribute more. And 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 in certain ways, you know, like I'd like my kids to be contributing even more than I was brought up to. Um, so I'm actually excited about that. And I love here now. It is so true. Until very recently, we had children for free labor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there you have it. That's the do less way. Here's the question, though, from a do less perspective. If a three or four-year-old is going to help you do something in the kitchen, it takes you three times longer and it's twice the mess. Yes. I love this question. Okay. <laughs> this is such a good question. Yes. Yes. Okay. But this is the same thing as hiring in your company. Yes. Is it easier for you to do it the first time? Of course it is. Is it annoying to train somebody? Yes. <laughs> However, if you, it is the best time you could possibly invest in the long term, because the hours it will free you up with for years to come are essentially infinite if you invest the time up front. And that's why I really like to think about spending time versus investing time. Spent time, you don't get it back. Invested time, you get a reward in some way. Now, with our kids, I understand. If there are three and four, you do just get a bigger mess. Like when my, you know, when my four-year-old helps me fold laundry, it's not done the way I like it. And I, it's really, I allow it to be my experiment in surrendering, healing my inner control freak, letting go and being present with her. Because when she's 16, I want her to still be folding laundry, <laughs> right? And for me not to be doing it then. And so I really, really, really recommend that A, when we decide we're going to have our kids help, that we decide that's like our activity right? So that's our time with our kids. So am I cooking 
with my kids to have a perfectly clean kitchen and for it to be the most efficient meal ever? No, no, I'm cooking with my kids to have fun and to be with them. So it's, and yes, down the line, then they'll know how to cook like in several years. So that's an investment. All right, I'm with you there. You also, in your book, you write about this addiction to busyness. Now, this is not a mom thing. Uh, This is a, a human thing. Studies show that something like 40, 50% of millennials and Gen Z uh, people in the population are experiencing regular chronic anxiety. <laughs> um, mm. And certainly as a, young, a younger person, uh, I like to think I'm still younger. I just have my 26% birthday after all, but I'm going to live to 180. Uh, but <laughs> I know when I was in my 20s, I was always that, you know, there, there's always more I could do, you know, for my career. And, and it was just one thing after another. And if I stopped doing it, I would get anxious and unhappy and all that stuff. Uh, and certainly parenthood uh, for moms or dads can, can change, you know, change your perspective on what matters, but the amount of business goes up. How do you recommend people break the addiction to business? Mm, I love this question. I think it's a lifelong kind of thing. And it really has to do with getting in right relationship with our central nervous system. So you spoke about anxiety and how prevalent it is. I used to be, I used to really struggle with this, with panic attacks. I was on medication. Um, and I, I tend to be an anxious person, as do many people. Um, and what I've realized is the way we are set up in terms of technology and in terms of expectation to be on and our culture's celebration of busyness and doing more sets us up to be in our sympathetic nervous system. Always fight or flight. And what what that does is, I'm sure you know this, but it actually limits our blood flow to our brain and puts our blinders on. So we see fewer possibilities and our creativity diminishes and our ability to be problem solvers (laughs) diminishes. And we make bad decisions that aren't good for our businesses, aren't good for our families. And so I have had to dupe myself into practices around being more calm, like meditation, like breath work, like, um, tapping the emotional freedom technique, like chewing slower. I mean, whatever, you know, what, like there's a whole smorgasbord of things you can do. I have tricked myself into doing those things because I always was such a hyperactive do more person that I had to tell myself, okay, if I calm my central nervous system, which I need to do just for thriving. And I know that, but that wasn't enough information for me. That wasn't enough of a reason. So I had to get into the data of, okay, if I calm my central nervous system and I can be operating from parasympathetic instead of sympathetic, then I'll get more blood flow to the appropriate areas in my brain and it'll make me more productive. (laughs) So I have, the great news is on the other side of that, now I care far less about how much I get done and I'm more calm. And so I really do recommend um, any amount of meditation. And so PS, like my amount of meditation is like five minutes, four times a week. So, and sometimes it's with a child on my lap. So I'm not setting the bar particularly high, but that amount has really worked for me or going to dance class, going to dance class for me is the way that I get into right relationship with my central nervous system. So I really, there's no one size fits all, you know, something different is going to work for, for each person, but those are some of the things that I do. And then just breathing in and out through my nose instead of um, through my mouth helps me quite a lot. You said something in there that's kind of dangerous. You said that you care less about getting stuff done. Is that the real secret to doing less? (laughs) Just give less shits about it? (laughs) Yeah, but I'll tell you why. (laughs) I'll tell you why. First of all, like you said about privilege, I am at a moment in my life and in my career where I'm proud of what I've created and and, and I don't have as much striving energy as I did in my 20s. So I think partially that's an age thing. Okay. However, I'm still super ambitious and I have like a dream list a mile long. But I think that the 
the beautiful byproduct of calming my central nervous system and really like being able to actually be present is I've begun to cultivate this deep well of joy where I'm going to sound like a huge nerd, but sometimes when I meditate, I get so happy sitting in my closet by myself because that's where I meditate because then there are two doors between me and my kids as opposed to one. I... And they can't find me the as easily. <laughs> I get so happy and I am just by myself on my closet floor. And it is just this deep well of joy. And it is not caused by anything other than the joy of being in a body in my own company. And that doesn't cost anything. It doesn't require any achievements. And so I think that for me, finding those pockets during the day where I can tap into something that's far beyond anything I could ever achieve, including a clean kitchen. Like I'm not even talking about resume achievements. I'm talking about like the laundry is done and I just care less. And that's so great because I'm happier and I'm more present for my kids. And I honestly don't want my girls to be, to grow up with the same belief system that I did, which is that your worthiness in the world is based on how much you achieve and your, you know, and your grades and your ability to be successful. Like I really want them to know that their worth is inherent and what matters is finding joy. And so I hope that I'm able to model that to the best extent I can. Now, we've all heard that it, uh, get rid of anything that doesn't bring you joy um, from you know, the secret art of tidying things up or the magic art <laughs> oh, yes. of tidying things up. Um, you know what brings me joy? What? Eating chocolate and watching Breaking Bad just over and over and over. <laughs> and maybe some good sake and sushi between the bouts of chocolate. <laughs> is, that, is that really <laughs> the, the recipe for doing less and, and all this? I almost feel like it, it's oversimplified because as humans, oh, I'd, I'd also like to have a lot of sex. Um, that brings me joy. Yeah. Like none of that's productive for the world, for my mission and for my kids really. But I mean, it brings me joy. Yeah. Well, I think there's, we an, balance that out? there's an intersection, right? There's okay. the things that just bring you joy. And then there's a, there are the things that add value to the world. And so if you were to create a Venn diagram, you want to do work, ideally, <laughs> that is the intersection of the two. You know, that little, uh, if it were the Vesica Pisces, which is a beautiful um, sacred geometry sign, right? It's that little uh, ellipse in the middle. Um, yep. So that is where we want to be in our work as much as possible. But P.S., like, there are things I don't, that don't bring me joy that I do in our business. Like, I don't love, you know, sitting down with my accountant and talking about taxes, but that's just kind of part of the deal. So the way I recommend dealing with those things, because they're inevitably things, oh my gosh, like I signing paperwork and talking about legal structures and trademarks, I just, oh my God, it's so hard for me. Um, however, I do believe that how we do something is sometimes equally as important as what we do. So uh, in my first book, Money, A Love Story, I talked about adding pleasure and fun to your financial practices to get yourself to actually do them. And so what I had to do when I was in financial recovery is bring dark chocolate with me to do my bookkeeping or drink kombucha out of a wine glass or, you know, put on a favorite song. Like, I think that we can infuse the things that aren't so joyful with as much joy as possible so that we just do them. All right. I, I like that perspective. Uh, and it's also kind of funny because uh, <laughs> in end of the day, that whole joy thing, it's a double-edged sword. And, and when you qualify it, say doing things to bring you joy that actually are useful. Uh, and then you start kind of inching back towards that busyness thing. Uh, but recognizing that useful things that suck your energy, uh, ha they have to be outsourced for you to do what you're here to do. Probably the, the guest who's been on the show who's said the most about that and taught me the most about that is Dan Sullivan. Yes. Uh, and I I write in uh, in Superhuman about the wisdom of our elders and how I've gone out of my way to cultivate friendships with people over 70 because I'm like, they have like 30 years more knowledge than I do and I'd rather learn from them than making the mistakes myself that the average person who's 26% of their life, of their minimum lifespan, that would make. So... 
they uh so dan talks about that in three buckets you know things that you hate that suck your energy things that are okay uh, but are necessary and things that you love. And he's like, if you're doing any of that first category, get the heck away. And the more you do that, the weaker you'll be. Um, and so you you have that that energy in what you're saying. But speaking of energy, the reason I really wanted to interview you, aside from just overall alignment on that doing less thing, it's that uh, you talk about when you have more energy, you can expand time. And in your book, you say, manage your energy instead of manage your time. And you say, when you do that, you end up having enough time for things that really matter for you. And no one talks about this, but the the guiding light behind what I do, and I this is also part of Superhuman, uh, my most recent book, is that there's a return on investment for everything you do. But everyone thinks investment is dollars, or maybe they think it's time. Mm-mm. And for me, the ultimate investment is energy. And you seem to understand that intrinsically, that if you don't have energy, who cares if you have time and money? <laughs> You're too tired to spend the time or spend the money. <laughs> so Yeah, and you don't care uh, about your life. <laughs> right, you just don't care. So how did you learn that energy was the ultimate currency for everything? I That is such a good question. I really am a very sensitive person. I am a very sensitive person and people's energy and the energy of things and the energy of rooms and the energy of tasks, like everything to me. I used to be a feng shui consultant in New York City. Is your amethyst pendant glowing right now? (laughs) No, I don't have one. I'm actually, I'm not even that into crystals. I sound like I would be a crystal person, but like, that's not really my thing. I mean, they're cool, but, and no, but so I'm just like really into the energy of things and everything does have an energetic quality to it, an energetic imprint. I mean, it's why there are solid pieces of furniture. That's just, that's just energy. And that's just the way the molecules are swirling around and it's all energy. And so, yes, I, I don't know. I always knew, but here's what I, here's what happened is that I started realizing after having kids that, well, just the one, (laughs) now I have two, that my, the quality of my presence with them mattered so much more than what I got done and what I did for them. And that so much of the, so much of the blueprint of what I had learned about what good mothering was was about what you did for your kids, not your presence. And I know for me, I just so craved, both my parents worked a ton, and I just so craved like them, actually being with them. And I didn't get a lot of that. And um, I think as, as the sensitive bunny that I've always been, I just was really aware of my own energy and other people. And so Yes, it is so critical that when when we manage our energy, we are so much better able to be present. And when we are at better able to be present, we get things done in way less time and we get them done way more effectively so that they have a bigger impact. And that's why I said the way we do things is almost equally as important as what we do because I really do believe how we do something is what we get. And that's all your energy. To your point about being a, a sensitive person, I was uh, I was only kidding about the amethyst. Uh, <laughs> I I do know from having started and and having run forty years of Zen, the neurofeedback brain training institute, you know, five days of intensive brain training, uh, and having had hundreds of high performing people come through there. There's a brain signature. We can spot someone on the first day with a twenty four channel. Uh, clinical grade EEG setup. Oh, you probably have a sensitive brain who's someone who just picks up on the energies of the world around you more than the average person. So there are are known uh, definitive patterns that we've teased out. Uh, So it is actually a real provable thing. And some people have, they're, they're more intuitive or they're more creative or, uh, you know, they're, uh, they have a higher EQ. 
it's usually in there. And whether it's a brain structure thing or a brain connectivity or what we call the connectome of the brain, I just want to say, you know, we can all make fun of it and say you probably have white robes and, you know, do feng shui and, you know, dance on one foot after eating mushrooms, <laughs> all of which may be true, but it's, you're probably doing that because that's part of how you're wired. Hmm. I love that. So you're, you're not as crazy as you might have thought you were. And I'm saying that for you or for anyone listening to this going, yeah, it's okay to be a sensitive person. It, it doesn't mean that you're um, better or worse than others. It just means that's part of your superpowers. And if you spend all your time trying to look at spreadsheets, it'll probably be toxic for you. Exactly. Talk to me about energy leaks. That's something that you talk about as well. Oh, this is so huge. Okay. So circling back to our very beginning of our conversation, if you're feeling overwhelmed, it is probably because something or someone is sucking your energy that you need to ha- be focused on your own well-being or the other things that are actually more important in your life. And it's usually... You mean like a baby? <laughs> well, yeah, it could be a baby. That's a little <laughs> bit different <laughs> because, you know, they depend on you for their survival. And it's just such a short period of time. With the sucking. <laughs> oh God, there you go, right? Yeah. Literally sucking. No, energy. literally. I mean, yeah, I feel like I've been nursing for a million years. But anyway, <laughs> that's a little bit different. Although it is kind of the same thing. No. But basically, you know, I look at the areas of our lives of, you know, you've got your health, you've got your finances, you've got your career, you've got your family. Um, your romantic relationship, your community, your spirituality, you know, you can separate it however you want, but those are kind of the key areas for me. And I really recommend rating them on a scale of one to 10, one being like, oh my God, my life is being sucked out of me by this area of my life, or 10 being, you know, I'm going to leap over a tall building in a single, in a single step right now. So then then you kind of know which area of your life is sucking your life force the most. Because what we tend to do as personal development oriented folks who I know are the people listening to this, we want to fix all the things all at the same time. And what I want to remind you is it's all the same thing. We do so much compartmentalizing of like my marriage is over here and my parenting is over here and my business is over here and my finances are over here. It's all the same thing. It's all this way. I hate the conversation about work-life balance. I'm like, my work is part of my life. It's all life. It's all life. We're not trying to balance things. We're just, I am all about integration. And so when you begin to understand that like a, a, a conversation, a difficult conversation that you need to have with your mother is affecting the way you show up with your daughter, is affecting your annual revenue. And, and, and that, and that, Dealing with the biggest energy leak first is going to all of a sudden free up all this energy for you to apply it and invest it in the other areas of your life that are going to give you a better ROI, even though you think like, oh, a 10 minute conversation with my mom does it couldn't possibly make a difference in my business. It will. It's all the same thing. Okay. That makes, that makes so much sense. And in terms of plugging those energy <laughs> leaks, what's the best way? Mm, well, you have to identify what they are first. So that I, that I mean, many people listening will automatically have you like you already know. If you thought of a relationship or something going on in your life, maybe it's your relationship with alcohol, maybe it's your relationship with your mother, maybe it's Instagram. I don't know. (laughs) But you know, and the thing that came into your head is it. I guarantee you whatever popped into your head is it. And then the plugging of the leak. Well, maybe if it's a substance or kind of like a a scroll addiction that you're in, or you know, it's a it's a self uh, self defeating behavior, then you know, I really do recommend looking at right with the work of Charles Duhigg, what's the cue? then what's the routine, then what's the, or what's the middle thing, and then what's the reward? Like, what's the cue, then what's the action, what's the reward? And and changing that up so that the cue, you actually just do something else as the middle thing that feels rewarding. Um, so if you're finding you're on your phone scrolling too much, then that then the cue might be, oh, I'm bored at my desk, or I'm stuck on what to write on this thing, I'll just pick up my phone. So instead of doing that, maybe it's that you go do 10 bounces on your rebounder, for example. So new, so cue, 
new action. And then the reward is you feel great after, <laughs> after 10 bounces. Um, and so that's one thing, but you might, you know, every energy leak is going to need a different plug. No plug is going to fit all situations. A lot of the time though, it's a relationship where you need to have a difficult conversation or limit the amount of time you spend with that person or try to stop fixing them or changing them. <laughs> that's a big one for especially a lot of women. Like we really want everyone to be happy. And if there's somebody we love who's close to us, who's not thriving or not happy, we take it on as we think that's our responsibility. But we really have to hand people their emotions back and say, that's actually not my job to take care of your feelings. I mean, I, you, we can be kind, but also, but also give them back the management of their emotions. So as an entrepreneur, that's doubly important uh, with people on your, on your staff. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So this is really key. What I recommend is having clarity about how communication works in your company and what is and is not acceptable and what, how it goes down in terms of communication. So um, I heard about a book and I'm going to say the name of this book. And I also have to say, I have yet to read it, <laughs> but it's next on my radar called Radical Candor about a way of having communication where everyone just agrees that if something's up, we address it right then. Because that prevents the need for all these side things and all these marinating and all the whatever. And I just, uh, it's so refreshing when something happens and then we deal with it. And then it happens and then we deal with it. As opposed to what a lot of people do is something happens and then we sit on it. And that will cut down a lot on, um, I mean, I don't want to spend my hours working dealing with people's emotional issues. I want them to be grownups and do their work. You know, yeah, so, some, so we're just more clear about that in our company. Um, the other guy um, who just wrote a really good book about that is, uh, oh, geez, it's the orange and blue book, uh, Charlie, someone or another. <laughs> ah, man, <laughs> how can I not think of the name of this book? It's a really powerful one. Has the every, Everyone who's listening has read this book. Um, the guy talks about the large, he's the largest hedge fund manager out there, uh, and I'm completely blanking on his uh, on his name. But he talks about believability and this idea of radical candor. Like if there's a problem, anyone's empowered to do it. And so you get the junior analysts who will talk to you know the billionaire hedge fund manager and be like, that you know you did a crappy job of prepping for this meeting. You showed up late, and like anyone at any time, and it feels like it could almost be a bit toxic if you go too far. Yes. Um, but at the same time, like hey that didn't work. I need you to fix it is probably a good thing to say, even though need is a weasel word. So, Well, that's true. And also like these things can be done so kindly. It doesn't have to be like you suck. It can be like, Hey, I noticed this thing, like maybe next time do this. And then if it's part of the culture and just part of what happens, I mean, I, I grew up in a family where we didn't talk about stuff. And so being with my husband, he's, he's the most direct person I've ever met. And so it's given me so much practice in like something is off and I address it immediately. And because I know I could do that with him because he does it all the time. Now I do that in my other relationships too. And it just keeps everything really fresh and current and everyone knows where they stand. So we're not draining our energy with all the things underneath the surface that aren't being set. That is a huge energy suck. Okay. I'm with you there. Uh, let's go to the next part in your book that was really interesting uh, for me. And that was uh, time bending. And you talk about how you can actually bend time. What do you mean when you say that? So Einstein's theory of relativity says that essentially time is completely relative to the object, essentially observing time. But we all know this. There's two types of time. There's um, there's Kronos and Kairos. So this is from ancient Greek. Kairos is suspended, timeless time. And Kronos is linear time that told us, you know, we were going to show up at this recording at a certain time. They're both super valuable, but I think most of us are operating in, in Kronos linear time. Um, and it's a very lack association with time, limit, limited Whereas Kairos is, so the way I describe it is the difference between the five minutes you waited for your coffee this morning in line and the five minutes that you held your child for the first time in your arms. 
the five minutes you held your child for the first time in your arms, you were not aware of time. Time stood still. It could have been five minutes. It could have been five hours. It could have been five seconds. You don't know. You don't care. Because the difference is inhabiting the time, is fully inhabiting the time. And when we do that, now we can't do it all the time, obviously, but when we find more moments in our days to fully inhabit the time, we actually end up having more of it. I mean, because when your perception of time changes, you feel as though you have more of it. And from a Kairos perspective and from the theory of relativity perspective, because the observer of the time has shifted, you actually do have more of it because at the end of the day, all we have is our perception. That's the only thing really that's real for us, even though nobody's perception is real. I mean, that was like a whole other thing. <laughs> You're definitely energetically sensitive. No, I'm <laughs> 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 totally kidding. Uh, you, uh, uh, you, the, the idea that time is relative. So uh, we all know that if something is boring and one of those things that sucks your energy, it feels like it takes forever, even if it doesn't. And you know, you something that's, uh, really, really fun. You're like, wow, I, I was just there for four hours and it feels like it just started. So you can work on that. But you actually have a mantra in the book that I've not heard anyone other than, um, you know, God uh, in those uh, conversations I have with him say, I am the source of time. But that's one of your mantras. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got that from um, uh, Gay Hendricks in his book, The Big Leap. Oh, is that from Gay Hendricks? Okay, so Gay Hendricks isn't uh -huh. God. I, I, there we go. I cannot, well, you know, we don't know, but <laughs> I think we're all God, <laughs> but that's a different conversation. Um, that is, yeah, so I am the source of time is such a wonderful one. Actually, this morning, I, will, I have a perfect time-bending story. So I had a 6.50 a.m. flight. I left my house too late because I was dealing with a toiletry issue. <laughs> <laughs> and whether or not I needed to bring conditioner, it was a whole thing. And so I ended up leaving my house 10 minutes later than I would have liked. And now I live 20 minutes from the airport and I like to get to the airport an hour early, even though it's a very small airport and I don't need to, but I just like the extra time because part of my way of calming my central nervous system is not needing to rush. So I da da da. I get on the highway, I'm going, and I realize, oh, wait, I went out on a date with my husband on Saturday night, and I put my ID and credit card in an evening bag that I did not replace back in my regular daytime wallet. And I had to go get off the exit, go all the way home, da, da, da. But on that ride, I just decided, I was like, well, this is an opportunity to time bend. I can either be in stress and anxiety, which I know will make me take longer to get there, or I can be in this moment of watching the sunrise, driving my car in the quiet of a main morning with no children, and I can enjoy it. And so I just decided I'm looping back, I'm getting my ID, I'm going, I found the perfect parking spot right across from the sliding doors where I waltzed into security. Nobody was there. I didn't have to take off my shoes, do the whole thing. I go, they are about to close the gate. I didn't even have to run. I just waved to them down the thing and they were like, oh, yep, there she is. I walk onto the plane. Literally from the moment I got to the airport, it was 10 minutes and I was in the airplane and basically we were taking off. And it was the perfect time bending because I decided to inhabit the moment instead of trying to pop myself somewhere else. And essentially, that's the key to time bending. Are you telling me you didn't drive in the high occupancy lane just a little bit? Well, Maine is too small. We don't have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> and also, I will say it was, um, it was, it was freezing rain this morning. And I, did, I knew I also drive a Prius, so it's like not great in, this, in the snow and ice. So uh, Prices aren't um, great when there's no snow in Iceland <laughs> in terms of it is driving not fast, a high turning performance or stopping, but yeah. <laughs> car. Not a high performance car, but I only pay $25 a month in gas, right. and I'm very enthusiastic about that. I get that. you on that front, right. Okay, so, so, so no, you, I you weren't... Speed, you weren't because uh, it would have been dangerous. You, you weren't running anyone off the road with your Hummer. I, I gotcha. Nope. 
Uh, and and it, it's totally true. And one piece of advice that I would offer for anyone listening, if you have that sort of travel anxiety, go to the airport late a few times on purpose just to feel the anxiety and then miss a flight and realize, yes. oh my God, there's always another one. <laughs> and like all of your stress about well, travel will go down because you know, I'm going to get there. That anyway. is, oh my God, it's such a good point. Also, yeah, I was in a blessed situation where I didn't have to be in New York City until four and I knew there were like eight more flights. So I just was in a relaxed state because I knew it was going to work out. But the truth is, it always works out. Yeah. It always works out. And that said, if you're, if you have to make it to New York because you're going on Dr. Oz the next morning, uh, which is a story <laughs> in one of my books that I, I talk about, and you know, I get to the airport and like, sorry, you can't get through the ticket line for a variety of airport security BS things. Um that's when you're like, okay, and then you put on your hat, which is uh, you don't believe in the can't. So I, in that case, I just bought a ticket for another flight. So I could get past security and show up at the gate for my flight. And they're like, how could how'd you possibly get through security? I'm like, I bought two tickets, guys, let me on. And they did. So Well done. Sometimes you got to be creative, but the deal is freaking out and uh, and all that. It, it actually makes time not work. But if you're calm, that it feels like time is bending. And sometimes things just work out more easily, even though we don't really have math or an explanation for it. Exactly. Uh, something else in your book uh, that I appreciate that you talk about is your experiment number six, ask for help. Tell me about that experiment. So this one is huge. For those who struggle with asking for help, which is most of us, my message is this. When you have decided that your worthiness as a human being is based on your ability to get more done by yourself, then you will struggle for forever with this. But if you can reorganize yourself so that your worth feels inherent and you're no longer trying to prove something by all the things you can do by yourself and you know your worth is inherent, like your strength of self is that strong then asking for help becomes so much easier because it no longer um, is a hit against your value as a human. And a lot of us struggle with this because we think it's a sign of weakness. But my invitation to you is a new belief, which is that asking for help or needing help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of being human. None of us were meant to do all the things by ourselves. And you're not like getting into a special room in heaven because you did more alone. That's just a recipe for being tired and lonely. Like literally, you're not getting anything from that. So um, I wrote a lot about asking for help because I think um, so many people struggle with it. So many of my dear friends struggle with it. I actually wrote that chapter it was the longest chapter. It's been edited, but the first version of it was 25,000 words, which was a full third of my word count guarantee with my publisher. And I wrote it for with this one dear friend of mine in mind um, because she had struggled so much with it. And I just wrote it as a love letter to her to please like let go and let the support in. And it's been really beautiful um, to witness her dismantle the armor she was wearing around her worthiness and her independence and how much that was her identity. And as that's been shifting, um, she's so much happier because she's able to let in the support. And what we really need as humans is more connection, not more independence. And when we ask for help, we're much more able to then give help when it's needed because we're not running on empty. I actually grew up, uh, learning that if you ask someone for help, then you would owe them later. So you should never ask for help. This is actually a really common thing that people get taught when they're kids from you know, whatever their parents go through or a teacher or something like that. Uh, and it wasn't until much later in life that I realized people actually like to help. Having an opportunity to help another makes someone else feel good. So when you ask someone for help, yes, they're doing you a favor, but by being... Uh, being there and asking for help and giving them the opportunity to help you, you're also in some strange way helping them because they they got to pitch in. And when you pitch in and you know you did something, at least you pitch on something that matters, um, there's a, a unique sense of satisfaction that comes from that. So I, I learned the hard way that, you know, it's okay to ask for help and 
that when you do, um, usually the people are grateful that they got to help out as long as you know you didn't ask them to you know take your garbage out because you didn't want to. That's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> but even then, right after you, right after you have a baby, yeah, there's lots of people who will take your garbage out for you because they know that it matters because you're recovering. Like it, so it even that can be an act of service that people are happy to do. It's not an imposition. It's an opportunity. No, it is one of those things that it is such a joy to help the people we love. Like it fills something in us that no amount of money or achievement would ever fill. I mean, at the end of the day, aren't we all just here to be be of service? And and when we when we reject help that's offered, it also feels kind of awful as the person who's offering it, at least in my experience. Yep, I'm with you there. Okay, let's talk about sleep. I've written some <laughs> of the original articles on hacking sleep um, that have been echoing around the internet uh, for a long time. And it's been uh, probably 12 years now that I've tracked my sleep almost every single night and gone from being uh, an absolute, uh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, I don't like sleep, how do I possibly minimize it, to it's one of the most important things I do. I still only need six hours and 10 minutes of it, but I'm sleeping more than the average you know, 20 year old uh, gets in eight hours and getting in six hours. I'm okay with it. But you talk about something I haven't written about in your book. You talk about yoga nidra. What mm. is it? Oh, yoga nidra I discovered because of my postpartum insomnia. Um, it is a, it's a, it's a deep meditation that gets your brain into a state of deep relaxation where you're not asleep, but you're also not really conscious. And they say, the people who have studied it, that 20 minutes of yoga nidra actually gets you the same restorative benefits of three hours of sleep. And for people who are having sleep disruption, insomnia, or um, you know, waking up a million times a night or whatever it is, they are able to get themselves able to sleep normally by doing yoga nidra. So it's a guided meditation where you lie down and it's 15 or 20 minutes and you know somebody walks you through it either in person or on an audio and it is a very profound experience of restoration and relaxation in an incredibly efficient way. Like for me, it's 10 million times more effective than taking a nap. So you use a guided meditation uh, and there's a bunch of them online uh, that you can get to. Uh, yeah. You just have so to find you, somebody's voice that you like. That's the trickiest part. <laughs> uh, got it. Uh, pretty soon we'll have some sort of like Siri plugin where you can change someone's voice. So they sound like, you know, your favorite, whatever you want. Yeah. That's so. a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> We're almost there, but in the meantime, yep. You got to find someone whose voice you like, but if you it, yoga and I D R a, so it's been a while since I played around with that, and I don't think I've ever used it for sleep, but I'm a, a big fan of yoga. So I, I like it that you just put that in your book and saying, all right, sleep is part of this doing less thing and getting uh, getting to, to getting to sleep more quickly or more deeply is a way to do less because you actually freed up a bunch of time so you could do less, which is cool. Yeah. Kate, your book is a wealth of knowledge. I don't think it's just for moms in business. It's for anyone who wants to focus on doing less. But I think your uh, your perspective as a mom of relatively young kids and an entrepreneur serves as a, a crucible for the high demand <laughs> times of life, uh, which, which is what makes you able to write the book. So th thank you for uh, for creating it and sharing it. You're your website where people can find more about your book and more about you is katenorthrup.com, K-A-T-E-N-O-R-T-H-R-U-P.com. Kate, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Thank you so much for having me. If you liked today's episode, you know what to do. Leave a book review for someone because that's one of the easiest things you can do to help out. And you hear me right now, I'm asking for your help. Leave a review. If you like Kate's book, leave a review. You like my new book, Superhuman, leave a review. That kind of a thing. Reviews help the author and help everyone else find which books are worth reading or which podcasts are worth listening to you. So thank you for listening today. Thank you for your time. I hope the return on investment in terms of energy you got for the last hour was worth it for you. And if it was, I'll see you on the next show. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. 
The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.